Hi, I'm Tyler Don Rosenquist, and welcome to Character in Context, where I usually teach the historical and ancient sociological context of Scripture with an eye to developing the character of the Messiah, but not right now. Right now, I'm doing a series about how not to waste your time with bad study practices, bad resources, bad mindsets, and just the general confusion that I faced when I started studying the Bible and was trying to figure out what to do and whose books I should read. Bottom line, I read a lot of nonsense and I spent a ton of money on it. I'm going to give you some basics on how to avoid a lot of pitfalls, save money, maximize your time and effort, and get the most out of what you're doing. And I have a master book list available on my website, theancientbridge.com, and I add to it as needed. Got a whole bunch to add to it now, actually, because I've been reading a bunch of G.K. Beale books on the use of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Really great stuff. Now, it can be shocking to people when they find out that no Bible is a straight translation and not even the Greek and Hebrew sources are without interpretation. That's right. We all have to face facts that what we're reading, no matter which translation or even the Hebrew and Greek quote-unquote originals, which of course we don't have either, are the product of choices made by human beings in trying to relate the original meanings to us as closely as possible. But it really shouldn't bother anyone because we're dealing with ancient languages which aren't even spoken anymore. Modern Hebrew is not equal to Biblical Hebrew, and Ancient Greek is not the same language as Modern Greek. There are words that only appear once in all of ancient Greek and Hebrew literature, and we have no idea what they definitely mean, even when we can guess from the context we find them in. In addition, a great many words in any given language do not have an equivalent one- or even two-word translation in other languages. Words like shalom or ubuntu refer to larger concepts and can take a paragraph to do justice to, even when a native speaker hears those words and immediately grasps the entire meaning. I believe that if this was more generally understood, then we wouldn't have the camps around specific translations calling this or that the one and only true word of God. It doesn't work like that unless we're talking about Yeshua, or, you know, you may call him Jesus. <laughs> and frankly, you know, no Bible translation can work like that. And this requires us to become extraordinarily humble in our handling of the text. First of all, let's talk about what a translation is and how we go about getting one. The best translations, of course, are to be had when a group of experts come together and work on the manuscript evidence as a team. And not just any manuscripts, but the best we have available. Not all manuscripts are created equal. An in-depth knowledge of not only Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek are required, but also related languages which have impacted or were impacted by the languages we find in the Bible, like Akkadian and Ancient Egyptian. An understanding of the sociology and culture are also important, as well as the rhetorical styles of the ancient world. This is just a small part of why we can't simply pick up a Strong's Concordance and start plugging in suggestions willy-nilly to our own agendas. An interpreter has to understand whether they are interpreting a polemic, a letter, an allegory, a narrative, or poetry. 
word-for-word literal translations don't work for much of anything but the simplest of sentences, which are rarely found in oral or written stories. In every language, words are used together in ways that are more than just the sum of their parts. One of the more famous examples of this within scholarly circles is the phrase righteousness and justice, or tzedakah and mishpat. Righteousness means one thing, and justice means another, but when used as a pair, they mean something entirely different throughout the ancient Near Eastern world. And if that sounds confusing, think of the words nice and warm. Nice means something, and warm means something. But the phrase nice and warm means something very different. Warm isn't always pleasant. And nice can mean a great many things, but put them together and they mean something like cozy and bring to mind either a warm fire on a cold day or a spring day after a long winter or when the soup's just right. Now, what it means exactly can only be understood from the context of the story being told. In the same way, righteous is a legal term meaning that in a certain matter, One person is declared to be right and the other wrong, righteous versus unrighteous. It isn't necessarily a value judgment about the person's whole life, but related to a certain incident. The most famous case of this in the Bible is Judah and Tamar, where he declared her righteous compared to himself when she disguised herself as a prostitute in order to get pregnant and raise up a son for her dead husband when Judah had all but cut her off from the family. What she did was gross, but justified based upon ancient Near Eastern laws and customs, which is all they had at that time. And Judah owed her both a husband and children as per the marriage agreement with his son. Justice is different because it carries the understanding that decisions will be unbiased and fair. But when we put them together as a pair, righteousness and justice... They mean the sort of rulings that a new king was expected to make upon coming to the throne, to set the captives free, support the cause of widows and orphans, and to right the wrongs committed against the oppressed, that sort of thing. And yes, that should sound very familiar to anyone with the story of the Exodus and with the prophets and the ministry of Yeshua. A translator also has to reflect the style and intentions of the different human authors. Although inspired by the Holy Spirit, the authors weren't robots. The language choices, wording, and general voice are very different from book to book. Paul writes differently than Isaiah, even though Paul quotes Isaiah a lot. And no one would mistake either Paul or Isaiah for what we find in the Gospels. All of which obviously had very different authors from one another, even if they did use some of the same source material. When someone quotes me on social media, I can usually tell that it was written by me a long time before I see the credit at the bottom, even if I don't remember writing it. What I write and how I write it is as familiar to me as the sound of my own voice. The biblical writers were the same way. If the Holy Spirit was simply taking over their bodies and writing, all of the books of the Bible would sound exactly the same, regardless of the language or origin or the time period. The style and culture of each author is very much reflected in the books they wrote. And of course, I have told you in the past that the Bible isn't one book, but a library with many different authors. 
And sometimes a single book will have multiple authors, as editors would have pieced together what, for example, different people recorded from David's reign. I mean, Samuel obviously was not the writer of all of 1st and 2nd Samuel because he was dead for most of it. In addition, the meanings of words changed even between the writing of different books and the way certain concepts were communicated. Sin is spoken of differently in the Hebrew scriptures than in the first century scriptures. What was once seen as a stain is later spoken of as a debt based on how different generations communicated the same concept. And remember, after the exile, the Jews were subjected to Babylonian, Persian, Greek, and Roman ways of communicating and thinking. And that alters the way you think and communicate. Does that for us too. We see this in our own language as well, where the meanings of words change. It's an absolute normal part of every language as it evolves. Words like gay, cool, and drama all mean something entirely different than they did a hundred years ago. And yet we still use them according to their old meanings as well. There is nothing simple about a translation job. In the Bible, we have words like Elohim and Baal that have a multitude of meanings. Some positive and some negative. Elohim doesn't always refer to Yahweh, and Baal isn't always referring to a false god. And what about words that only show up once in the Bible and never outside it? What are translators supposed to do with those? Words whose meanings are unknown even to Hebrew and Greek experts and don't show up in any other related language either. Maserot, for example, which people have recently decided refers to the Hebrew version of the astrological chart representing the 12 tribes and what they believe God showed Abraham in the skies. But that was a decision for the sake of sanity. We have no idea what that word actually meant in ancient times. There may come a time where archaeology changes that, but for now, we can only guess, and so the word goes untranslated in the Bible. Instead, it is transliterated, syllable for syllable into English or whatever other language the Bible's being translated into. And Paul, he was notorious for making up entirely new words, based on his needing words that just didn't exist in Greek, sometimes combining two Greek words in an unexpected way, to communicate a concept that was very foreign to Gentile audiences, or sometimes seemingly making something up entirely that can't be found outside the Bible at all. Of course, with Greek, we actually have a ton of help in translating because so much Greek literature still exists, and that can be mined for definitions for a great many otherwise unknown words. For example, uh, when I did a teaching on pharmakia, I had to go outside the Bible to discover what it meant because it isn't as obvious as many assume based on modern usage of related words. With ancient Hebrew, the Bible is all we have to go on, which makes things very difficult. Scripture doesn't always interpret scripture. Words still mean things in their original context and setting, and no manuscript comes with any sort of dictionary. Greek manuscripts have no spaces between words or punctuation. Can you even imagine making judgment calls about where to divide up sentences or words? The job of a translator seriously sounds like living in the third level of hell for me. Just FYI, that is the level directly below being forced to drive a middle school bus for all of eternity 
and right above being the manager that Karen demands to see. Hebrew has an entirely different problem. No vowels until the late first millennium, like over 700 years after Yeshua rose from the dead. And there are situations where textual critics are quite certain that a letter in a word was copied incorrectly with that error reproduced by scribes. A yod can look like a vav, and a vav can look like a finial nun. If you've ever looked at the manuscripts, it can be very hard to tell what a specific letter is, and without vowel points, it can be hard to make a judgment call if a particular word should be this or that. We can never lose sight of the fact that they weren't using a typewriter or a computer. These were handwritten documents, and as much as we might like to believe that handwriting doesn't matter, we all know that it varies from human to human, and when you're dealing with such a huge document, no one is perfect with every stroke. Although the Aleppo Codex comes pretty close, but where the sources used by the Aleppo Codex have great handwriting, we don't know. That the manuscripts are even as much alike as they are is practically unbelievable and really speaks to the commitment and skill and integrity of the scribes. All this means that translators have a huge job. Word order differs from language to language. One Hebrew word can be the total of many English words. For example, instead of my father, they say Avinu. And to translate it literally would come out as like father mine. They combine possessive pronouns with the root word, and with verbs, it gets a lot more complicated with the different forms, tenses, and indicators as to whether a male or female is carrying out an action. And what do translators do when a verse is traditionally in the text, but when older, earlier, and superior manuscripts are found without the verse? Remove it and people scream that you are taking away from scripture, not understanding that at some point the verses were actually added. And how do verses get added? Sometimes, as you could imagine, the scribe goes on autopilot, misremembering what comes next based on competing gospel accounts, and they might add a line from Luke to Matthew absolutely innocently. The next copyist just assumes it's correct. Another possibility that we see are notes added to the sides of manuscripts and sometimes later being mistaken for a scribal mistake which gets added in. Probably the least known example and probably the most egregious is the addition of 1 Corinthians 14, 34 through 35. Scholars now understand that this was a much later addition as it is absent from early manuscripts and seems to have been a side note inserted by a Greek congregant as the Greeks were notorious for not allowing women to be educated. Here are the verses. The women should be silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to submit themselves, as the law also says. If they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, since it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. And that's from the Christian Standard Bible. We can see from the manuscripts that even the scribes, the copyists, didn't believe it was original, as their editorial marks show. But it's very hard to remove something that people are used to. With these two verses, we have the additional problem of them appearing in two different places in 1 Corinthians 14, based on which later manuscript is used. As the verses are obviously out of place in each location, and as they directly refute other verses in 1 Corinthians, which have women praying and prophesying and whatnot in the congregations, 
it provides quite the dilemma. To keep or not to keep? It's a catch-22. The people reading the Bibles aren't scholars, and most do not accept textual criticism and can't even deal with the fact that we don't have any autographs, which are what you call the original documents. We don't have Paul's original letters to use as a ground zero of what is and is not accurate. Sure, assuming that everything is always accurate is comforting, but it isn't reasonable, and the documents don't back that up. Not for the Greek, Hebrew, or Aramaic scriptures, and I've told you guys before that uh, the Gospel of Mark has four different endings. Here's another dilemma. Does a word like Adam mean the person, Adam, or a man in general, or all of humanity? How does the meaning of the text change if you choose the wrong one? Let's look at Genesis 1, 26 through 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. Did God only make men in his image? That's how some interpret it. And yet the context says that man is male and female. So we are forced to translate it as mankind or humanity or humans or people. Some go so far as to make the original human half male and half female, but that's not what is originally being communicated. God created humanity in God's image. In male and female form with male and female biological functions, but both carrying out the equal image of God together. They were created as a team to rule over the entirety of creation. Like the verses I read to you above, what I just said was also an interpretation. To focus on maleness and to focus on all of humanity are both interpretational and translational choices. And the Bible is full of these decisions about how this or that is best said, either to reflect the original intent of the author or to be understandable, or to serve an agenda, or to best reflect the actual text. As much as we would like to do all these things, it's not possible. Although we shouldn't want to do the agenda one. We shouldn't. Translating a story from one language to another, languages that frankly have nothing to do with each other, linguistically, is always going to be about choices. Which is why one person shouldn't ever be trusted with the whole process unless there is no alternative. Egalitarians, people who believe that men and women are completely equal, differing only in biology and not in ability to lead and rule over creation or serve in church. Complementarians, those who believe that men and women aren't equal in society, but only in being image bearers with different roles in the church and as marital partners with the men in authority over the women. Patriarchalist who believe all men and women are not equal in any way, shape, or form, with men being superior to women in all relationships, public and private, all make different interpretational choices when translating the Bible. And there is a lot of wiggle room and gray area to work with in pursuit of the desired outcome. This is why a good translator isn't just a master of languages, but also understands the greater meta-narrative of Scripture the overarching storylines that tie the books of the Bible together in unity, despite their many differences, so that they can see where we began and where we are headed to in order to reflect the biblical narrative as beginning in a mess and ending in perfection. People often ask me, 
which is the best translation or version for them. And translations and versions are different things. The KJV, for example, is not a new translation, but a piecing together of what former translators had accomplished, mostly Tyndale. And if anyone wants to protest that it is the authorized version, I will have to remind them that authorized meant one and only one thing. It was about the printing rights granted by the crown. Only a handful of London printers were authorized to produce copies of the KJV and bootleg copies from other printers, which lacked the stamped authorization, were gathered and burned. In fact, funny story here. One of the first things that the printers in the United States began to do after throwing out British rule was to begin printing off their own unauthorized copies of the KJV for popular reading. I'm not dissing the KJV, it was a marvel for its time. But the translation was based off of only a handful of Greek manuscripts, none older than the 12th century, as well as the Masoretic text of the Hebrew scriptures from the late first millennium. Translationally, it was a good fit for the audience of the common people because it was in colloquial English, with the common thee, thine, and thou instead of the formal royal you and your. Shakespeare wrote largely for the uneducated. It only sounds fancy and highfalutin now because it's foreign to us. Words no longer mean what they did, which can be really confusing and lead to bad interpretations on our part. Anachronisms crept into the text all over the place with bursting bottles instead of wineskins, Easter instead of Pascha, but also they accurately have the name Junia as an apostle instead of later 20th century versions who objected to the name of a woman and changed it to Junius, like the NASB. Different versions of the Bible have their pros and cons, things they get right and things they get wrong. I want to talk to you really quick about three of the worst abuses of biblical interpretation, and all are in what I would call fringe Bibles, which are Bibles that were written to a target audience for various reasons in order to profit from or cater to a certain group and push certain agendas. Probably the best known is the QJB, the Queen James Bible, manipulated in such a way as to actually completely alter the meaning and sense of any and all verses related to homosexuality without any scholarly backing. And I was about to tell you about two problem Bibles within the Hebrew roots, Messianic circles, but then I remembered others. And I'm not going to name names here because some of the information I have is secondhand, but some of these Bibles are plagiarized with Paleo-Hebrew just inserted into existing translations. And others are translated, quote-unquote, by people with zero knowledge of the Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek who use Strong's Concordance and the Holy Spirit to come up with their own versions. And others misrepresent modern works, like I'm talking like 700 years old, like um, Sefer Hayasher as the ancient book of Jasher and claim that extra-biblical books that were never considered to be canonical by the Jews are somehow inspired, like Enoch and Jubilees. If you recall, we talked previously about how it was discovered when Jerome went to Bethlehem to learn Hebrew from the Jews so that he could translate his own version and not, not have to rely on anyone else's work, that the Greek apocryphal books weren't ever considered to be anything other than fictional and popular writings by Jewish authors and sectarians. So just be careful. And if you're ever wanting advice on a Bible to choose, since it's quite the investment, never hesitate to get a hold of me. 
Another version makes the debunked claim that the Aleph Tav is code for the Messiah through the Hebrew scriptures, but that is to actually ignore its literal function of pointing from a verb to the direct object of the verb's action. Genesis 1, for example, Bereshit bara Elohim et hashemayim va'et ha'aretz. The verb is bara, meaning to create, and only ever has God as the subject doing the creating, so it's a special kind of creating. What is God creating? Et hashemayim and et ha'aretz. The two et, which is the Aleph Tav, simply point to the two things created by God. In the beginning, God create pointer heavens, pointer earth. And these Bibles are generally really expensive, but are based on a lack of knowledge of linguistics, literature, grammar, etc. But they are interpretations based on faulty premises and not based on knowledge. (laughs) 